Paul Wright is the former editor of the UMass Press in Boston. He was in that position from 1988 to 2006, and he is now a publishing and print culture historian. Welcome to the Bibliophile. My pleasure. I wonder, just to start off, if you could give us a bit of an idea of your role as the editor of the UMass Press. What do you do? Well, I was an acquisitions editor, which means I approach authors, I review manuscripts, assess uh, proposals, help put together the list, the seasonal list, read the damn things, <laughs> do a preliminary edit, pass it on to the production and copy editors, and hope for the best. Okay. That was to start with. Well, let's back up a little bit. I started out in publishing as a production editor. Okay. Which means uh, taking the... The copy edited product through the production process. During that time, I learned a lot about how books are made, about typography and uh, processes, and so on. So what? Uh, press checks and uh, proofreading. Proofreading. The first, the first thing they ever gave me to do was a uh, to proofread an index of a book I had never seen. Okay. And I couldn't find anything <laughs> wrong with it, so I thought I'd failed. <laughs> Well, you couldn't check the the, the page number. With the <laughs> it was a complete mystery to me what the proofreading marks were. I actually got a Webster's Dictionary had a list of proofreading marks, and I studied that to find out what I was supposed to write on the damn pages. <laughs> so they just threw you in? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This was when I was right out of the Army. Okay. And then I did some freelance writing and uh, a bunch of uh, educational projects and also went to graduate school. And Here in Boston? Or? Uh, yeah, at Boston University in American Studies. Studied with a famous book historian, David that, Hall. David Hall? And uh, Did he write the uh, history of uh, the Harvard University Press? No, that's Max Hall. They not, related? Not related. <laughs> okay. Da David, David was the general editor of the History of the Book in America series that Probably know it started with Cambridge and then <clears throat> went on to North Carolina Press, like six volumes over there. Oh yeah, okay. When did that come out? Probably the last volume came out in sixteen or seventeen. Okay. It took a long time. Yeah. A massive project, a terrific project. Lots of contributors. Lots of contributors, the major scholars in the field, all of them, I think, pro bono. Oh. I was supposed to write a chapter on the university presses in the post-war period. Okay. And I never heard anything about any <laughs> stipend. Ah, okay. And I never got around to writing the piece either. Right. So anyway, from there I got into acquisitions editing uh, in a commercial library publisher named G.K. Hall. Another yeah. Hall. Yeah. And then eventually wound up at UMass Boston working for the chancellor, and I said to him, you know, I'm an editor. Do you want to have an editor of the university press on the Boston campus? And he said, yes. So okay. that's how it all came to be. I worked with a really wonderful guy named Bruce Wilcox, whose mother had been the managing editor at Harvard Press. I think I lost the, the trend of the question. Oh. Just the role of, uh, yeah. what, what, uh, what the role of an editor of uh, university press would right. be. I think it's mainly to keep in touch with networks of scholars 
who are the primary audience, the primary authors, and the primary reviewers of this very small, relatively small community of folks who are interested in specific areas. And it turned out that uh, the history of books in general and publishing and uh, reading and authorship and turned out to be a very interesting, uh, dynamic, interdisciplinary endeavor that started up in the late 90s, I guess. So, yeah, what, what got you into, first of all, what is book history? Well, it's, it's the history of, it, it derives from a French movement called Histoire de Livre. The history of the book is translation and into English, and it's basically to, to understand that books are not just objects, they, they have a history, and they're, they're not just vehicles for uh, ideas and expression, they're also, they're also expressions in themselves. They can be understood to carry messages and in their formats, and uh, and they're linked to social uh, and cultural history because of the great increase in literacy, in, at least in the West, in the 19th and 20th centuries. So right. big, they became big business books, did. Yeah. And well, print they, culture in general. Yeah. Magazines, I mean, newspapers. Yeah, yeah, no TV, no radio, so... And, and now we're in the point where it's... The, the internet has taken away a lot of the audience for those traditional print outlets. Right. And so what was it then that made you focus on this area as a publishing venture? Partly it was my own graduate training which I, in which I started out a dissertation on uh, the Boston publishing community before the Civil War at the period when the great American Renaissance was taking place. And I just thought it would be very interesting to understand the publishers, of which I was one, not a 19th century publisher, but a publisher. So that's Tickner and Fields and Tick, people like Tickner that? Tickner and Fields is the important and, and well-known name. They published uh, Hawthorne and Thoreau, and later on Emerson. They had the old uh, corner... Uh, old corner bookstore, yes. Yeah. Early on in my uh, career, I wrote a treatment of the old corner bookstore for the architects who redeveloped it as a uh, commercial space. A treatment of what? A historical summary of what had happened in the building. So that what, they could gut the place? Well, no, they didn't gut it. They tried to reproduce the, some of the ambience of a 19th century bookstore. And for many years it was a, uh, it was a bookstore that was run by the Boston Globe in, hmm. the, in the, the late 20th century. Okay, because now it's a Chipotle. Yes. <laughs> Sad, and it's too bad that the, I mean, at least the basic shape of the building is preserved. But have they, what have they done to the insides? I don't know. I haven't been in there. Because that sure would be a good project to bring it back the way it was. It would be great to make it even into a, a sort of a cultural museum of yeah. some sort. Yeah, because I, I mean, I know that whole area is just thick with literary history. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I got interested in uh, 19th century publishing as a graduate student, and then I went on to uh, editing and publishing myself. And in 1990 or 91, I went to a seminar at the American Antiquarian Society in Worcester, a summer seminar on the book. And they've got a pretty decent library there, right? They stop at 1877. You know this, right? No. The American Antiquarian Society collects everything up to the disputed election of 1877 when uh, Rutherford B. Hayes became president by a compromise with the Congress and the Democrat Samuel Tilden was kicked out. 
Okay. Right after the Grant administration. Anyway, for pre-1877 imprints, they have the best collection in the world. And they have the greatest staff. Of uh, just American or everything? M mostly Americana, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And once you get into the pre-revolutionary period, of course, it's English and uh, some continental materials, too. Right. So it was like summer camp for book nerds. It was two weeks <laughs> in the summer in Worcester. And, and we all we did was we went to classes in the day, and we uh, would buy a case of beer and get drunk at night and talk about books. Wonderful. It was great. And I made a lot of contacts with people, and one of the things that came out of it was this Perspectives on American Book History, which is was intended for, and I hope it's used in classes, came out in 2002, I think. And basically you got a lot of the contacts that you'd made there to contribute. I did. Their take on, or their areas of study as it related to book history. Yeah, it's, it's, it attempts to be uh, chronologically comprehensive, starting with the colonial period and moving right through the 20th century. And one of the guys who edited it, Jeff Groves, was my roommate at this seminar. <laughs> okay. And several of the people that are in it uh, were there. It was such a sharing and uh, collegial community yeah. that no one in, involved with this book had ever received a penny of royalties. They all did it pro bono to advance the field. The only money we spent on the book, uh, cash, pre-press, was uh, paying some reproduction fees. But the American Antiquarian, God bless them, let us have complete access to their collection. So everything up to the 1877 we got to use for free. And that means photographs primarily? Photographs, uh, documents. Yeah. And this is before the internet was really reliable and ubiquitous. Yeah. So it has a CD in it. Oh, excellent. With all the images. Yeah, yeah. Nowadays you'd, you'd uh, go to a website and get the images. Right. So is this, this the first big this, foray into the... This into particular the, book, Perspectives in American Book History, was maybe the third or fourth book in a series that, that the UMass Press let me start called uh, Studies in Print Culture and the History of the Book. And the but, fir first book that I did in the series was with David Hall, who had been my mentor and who was actively editing the big uh, History of the Book in America project. And it was a collection of his programmatic and professional papers on book history did very well and it sort of kicked the series off because then people would look and say well David's publishing there so yeah. I see okay so it was your initiative and you just felt that this was an interesting new field that the press would do well by to promote and and, yeah. and yeah. Reach, what, reach out to these scholars and help them get their, their, their research out. Yeah, I think we were one of the first university press series in this area. There are several now. Toronto has one. And so, again, it was just your, you just thought this was a fascinating field that, was, that was underserved by publishers. It was, yeah, and it was also a field that was growing yeah. exponentially and was bringing in a lot of young, interesting people it was bringing in bibliographers and historians, literary critics, literary historians, even social and cultural historians, because the book is a place where all this stuff meets. Yeah, you put it very well here. Um, you talk about the book, 
the physically made it's a physically made object as a conjunction flowing together and a nexus of social currents intellectual trends economic potential historical forces technological advances commercial demands it's a fluid contingent socially constructed and even an accidental what accidental I'm not sure I can't remember my own words <laughs> I'm just listening to you say this and I'm thinking there's a whole damn dissertation in there well I was just about to say I, I want to break this down a bit yeah. like uh, for example it's we talk about social social currents so so how does book history reflect social currents well uh, it has to do with popular culture popular taste then again this would be the books that are published at the time and, yeah. and the subjects that they deal with. And part of the issue with book history is that uh, in the past, in literary criticism particularly, the great canon was studied. Yeah. Underneath and around that is an entire world of secondary literature, of religious publications, of popular novels, of pornography. Yeah. That's been studied pretty well by, uh, what's her name, she teaches at Smith. I can't remember now, but so let's say Moby Dick is floating on like Queen Queen's coffin on a huge sea of print culture that's you know sort of undulating and swelling and breaking uh, like a, an ocean. Right. So I mean, in the past it was just Moby Dick. Now we're getting what all about the, the in fiction anyway books that that haven't stood the test of time, but were out there and influencing people. Hundreds, hundreds and thousands of them, and books that people like Melville read. Right. Melville was an omnivorous uh, autodidact, and he read uh, two or three newspapers a day. Huh. He read, when he wanted to become a poet, which he did late in his life, he read uh, something like two or three hundred of the classics of English poetry. We have his books, we have his annotations in them. Right, that's a beautiful example of book history then. Yeah, yeah. And so what does that help to tell us then if we've got his annotated books? Well, we can understand more about the creative mind. Yeah. We can understand more about Moby Dick, which still still has its enigmas. And, uh, and we can understand the, the cultural predecessors of our own day. You can look at comparative uh, editions of Moby Dick and just see the taste in book design and book production and jacket design developing over the years. Yeah, of that's one that one book in particular. That one book in particular. Yeah, yeah. You could do a whole seminar on just the ways that Moby Dick was presented. Right. And then it gets presented in film. There's a beautiful uh, illustrated edition of Moby Dick, which does an illustration for every page of the text in, in one particular edition. Oh my goodness, it must be a thick book. This guy's name is Matt Kish, and it, it's it's worth looking at. I know Barry Mo Moser's... Uh, Barry did that beautiful... Uh, uh, Aryan Press one. Aryan Press one, yeah, I wish I had a copy of that. Me too, yeah. I have a copy of uh, Barry's Bible. Oh, have you? Yeah. yeah. I saw that. I interviewed him not that long ago. He's amazing. He has an amazing facility. Yeah. I've seen him do a quick sketch for a friend of a harpoon. Okay. You know, it's 
three or four passes with the pen and it's there. Yeah, no, he's uh, he's he's just delightful to talk to too. He's yeah. quite a personality. We knew him pretty well when we were out in Amherst, and when I was uh, in graduate school in Amherst, I studied with a guy named Sidney Kaplan, who was Leonard Baskin's partner at the Gehenna Press. It's another way I got interested in printing and publishing. Uh huh. You saw what beautiful work they were doing. I, yeah, and I saw the actual. They had a big Heidelberg sitting on a Persian carpet. <laughs> In a, in a press room that was as clean as an operating room. No ink, no oil, nothing. Pressman's name was Harold McGrath. He's yes, and uh, Barry was raving about him. He he was saying that he could line things up and you know in a way that uh, that very very few others could. Harold was fantastic, and letterpress requires attention to the imp impress impression. You can't. Well, around you either get a mess or you get a really beautiful, crisp impression that you can actually, you can feel it. Yeah. It doesn't destroy the paper. Harold was terrific. So that's that was one of the the reasons that you were bitten then. Yeah, and just uh, you know, some people just love books. I, you know, uh, I know it's, and when you're asked about why, it you can think like I. It's, possibilities that my, you know, my father took me to bookstores when I was a little kid. Uh, I didn't like it all the time, but obviously I, I sure do now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint uh, a reason. My son got a management degree at Yale and he got, and in the course of his career he wound up as a vice president for supply chain management at, at Random House. Big time job. And he <laughs> once gave us a, a talk to his warehouse staff, and he said, I grew up in a house with 5,000 books, many of them random house books. And he says, probably some of you were picking and packing the books that my father has. <laughs> That's neat, isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. It, it really, and, you know, the, the, the environment that a kid grows up in, look, look where he ended up, you know. It's uh, yeah. very powerful. And he also... Uh, when he was at uh, Bertelsmann, he was uh, working as a consultant with Booz Allen, and he <laughs> he said to me, "The secret of publishing is you have to publish bestsellers, and you have to print a lot of them." Right. He get he get a more uh, nuanced. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, that's the that's the story these days. Is they're all after the bestsellers, and they're, you know, if you if you don't have the potential to be a blockbuster they're nowhere near as interested in you are they it's it's not such a good uh, yeah the, the 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 death of the middle range book yeah either fiction or non-fiction and a lot of us in university presses were picking up some of those titles for a while right because it addresses an audience and it you know you could sell 10 20,000 maybe which is be a big sale for a university press yeah so um, when you started Publishing books on book history. What was your intention? Like, where where did you want to go with this series? I mainly wanted to to uh, publish the best of the recent scholarship, advance the field, I guess you'd say, and entertain myself. I mean, <laughs> any editor who doesn't like the books that they publish is in the wrong business. Right. So you basically went after books that you th you really wanted to read yourself. Ex exactly. That's, <laughs> that's the strongest editorial position to come from. Well, yeah. I suppose you become an expert in the field. Yeah. You know? I mean, I could talk the talk with them. 
and I I could uh, understand what they were trying to do. It's not a it's not a huge audience, and it's it's market the marketing and uh, bottom line is dicey. Yeah. In any university press book, but since it had a crossover audience of interdisciplinary sort, we thought we could make some money with it. Yeah. I, I think it probably. My guess is it's broken even, but I don't know. I'm. I know this book is done well and used in courses. Let's get the title of that again. Yeah, it's called Perspectives on American Book History, Artifacts and Commentary. Edited by Scott Casper, Joan Chasen, and Jeffrey Groves. Uh, you, would you say that's a really good introduction to the field? Yep, for American. Okay. The American stuff. It has a, a very, very uh, special introductory essay by Bob Gross who's another famous, uh, well-known book historian, who lives out in Concord. Concord? Yeah, Mass. He did a, he did a book on the uh, Concord during the American Revolution, and now he's just writing a sequel on Concord during the Transcendental Period. You know, Emerson and Thoreau were out there, the Alcotts. Uh, right. Yeah, I've been to some of their houses. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, some of the big titles in the field that people might want to... Uh, familiarize well, themselves with. going way back to the 60s, there's Elizabeth Eisenstein's uh, The Printing Press is an Agent of Change. You probably know that book. I've heard the title. I haven't yeah. read it. Yeah. Which, uh, when I was a graduate student, was a revelation to see somebody do this book, which argues that the uh, scientific revolution and the Reformation were all, and I mean, this is pretty commonplace now, were all driven by the printing press. Yeah. And the, and the relatively cheap, relatively ubiquitous uh, text that could be available to scholars. Uh, another important figure is Robert Darton. You probably know him. I'm off to interview him this afternoon. Oh, okay. He, he Is he still at Harvard? That's where we're meeting. I don't know if he's... Yeah, he was head of library at Harvard for a while. That's right. And he did wonderful work on the... Um, French Revolution and the book trade and how the, it's the subversive aspects of the book trade overturned the ASEAN regime and so on. He developed this very sophisticated theory of the circulation of book culture and, and the way that books were produced, marketed, and, and the feedback loop of, uh, of readers. Terrific and very, very inspiring. Okay. Anyone else? David Hall, as I said. Uh, yeah. Very important. Okay. Uh, another fellow that uh, I studied with at the American Antiquarian Summer Seminar, Michael Winship. Oh, yeah. Did a very interesting and serious book on Tickner and Fields as a business in the 19th century. And he's also done work on uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is one of the all-time seminal books in American print culture and American history. That was published by Beaton, wasn't it, in England? Think. I don't know who published it in England. I it was, think it was. It's the same. It's the husband of the woman that did the famous cookbook. Ah, okay. And he was a publisher. Yeah. Now, I'm not 100 percent sure on that, but I th think there's a well, connection there. There was a strong abolitionist movement in England, and I wouldn't be surprised. It yeah. was published here in Boston by Jewett. Okay. It's first published, I think, serially, and then published as a book. Lincoln called it the little book that made the big war. That may be apocryphal. We don't know for sure. Right, right. But it makes it, it makes sense because it did. Uncle Tom's Cabin really did catalyze a lot of abolitionist thought about slavery. But in the popular culture, it was probably not 
uh, it didn't come to the fore as an issue that people wanted to confront until they read Uncle Tom's Cabin. This sentimental picture of the... They're able to empathize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. I did publish a book on Uncle Tom's Cabin by a woman named uh, Barbara Hochman, who teaches in Israel. Okay. Another interesting book that we published in that series was on Silent Spring, Rachel Carson's book, yeah. and it's called What a Book Can Do. And again, it, it just talked about the impact of this book. Right, the, on the, the uh, origins of it, the publication history, it was published first in the New Yorker, I think, as a lengthy piece, and then eventually as a book. Uh, JFK yes. latched onto it, and it, it inspired him to sort of generate a political environmental policy. Yeah. And, and and Rachel Carson was a terrific writer. I mean, she just was a very good writer and yeah. a very good scientist, so it turned out to be one of the books that influenced the 20th century. Yeah. Hmm. You call publishing anarchy masquerading as business. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to figure out how to explicate that. It's like... Uh, the business there is making a product for the marketplace. The anarchy part is rounding up all the, like herding cats, rounding up all the pieces that would work. The author at the right moment, a manuscript that's readable, if it needs illustrations, the capital for it all. On any given day, I think I would deal with 20 different projects, pieces of them. So right. it seemed like stuff was flying in and out all the time. And the internet made it easier but it made it more hectic because more yeah. stuff happened. And more stuff coming at you at the same time, yeah. I guess. So all of these pieces are coming together, and finally, at a moment, you have a publication date, you can hold up a printed book right. and put it on the marketplace. But it yeah. seemed it seemed that uh, it was not a carefully planned step-by-step -step procedure. Even though at the end it, it looks... It looks like if somebody knew what they organized were... Very organized. Yeah, it looked like somebody knew what they were doing. <laughs> so how many in total in that series? Did it, go, it went for years, it's I guess. It's still going. It's still going. Yeah, oh, if great. you go to the website, it's uh, just Google UMass Press and you'll come to the website. And it's, there's probably 35 or 40 titles now. Oh, great. So I'm responsible for maybe the first 15. So really... Uh, other university presses can get into the field if they want to, but you had an early start and you had a lot of a lot of the names already. Yeah, we did. Yeah, yeah. especially in that and call that an anthology. This is a, a collection of readings. Yeah, that wasn't the first in the series, but it, it's, yeah, it seems to me it really pulled a lot of people in. It encapsulates what the state of the discipline was in two thousand two or whenever it came out. Yeah. Yeah. Are they going to be doing another similar one? or? I don't know. I mean, a lot of people now have come along with readers and introductory texts. Uh, Routledge, Routledge in England. I uh, saw that, actually. I saw a copy of that uh, the other day ones. at the Harvard uh, books, Bookstore downstairs. University of Pennsylvania Press has a series. Penn State Press has a series. What do you think the best, uh, the best book, uh, just as a kind of <laughs> aside from yours, of course, uh, but that's an introduction to the field for for not for someone who's not an academic but who loves books. Uh. <laughs> I mean, that your book isn't overly academic, is it? Uh, it's 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 geared at teaching uh, at the level undergraduates and graduate students, and it has you know citations, bibliography. The idea is to sort of get you so interested you follow up and 
do some work your own. Uh, you know, you can do work on individual titles, you can do work on uh, genres, you can do work on uh, publishers. One of the books I published was uh, a study of Ezra Pound and New Directions. Isn't that great? Yeah, because he had a he had a big impact on the young uh, James Lachlan, didn't he? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Lachlan he went, lived he went to yeah, he went to lived with him in, in Italy. Yeah. And uh, of course, Pound was famous for editing Elliot. Yeah, cutting yeah. the wasteland down. <laughs> well, Pound seemed to be he knew absolutely everyone, and he helped everyone get published. And he did, and he was wonderful until he. Ran into national socialism and uh, fascism. Yeah, and yeah. He sort of lost his mind. He did, yeah. But prior to that, yeah, he's just so important to yeah. the literary yeah. culture. Right? Yeah, it's part of that modernistic break with the nineteenth-century genteel tradition. Uh huh. So many great uh, poets and novelists. James Joyce, one of my favorites. So a, a book that would, I think, this would be a good start. Uh, yeah. That you could look at uh, the series that David Hall edited. There's a huge two-volume uh, collection from Oxford University Press. Oh, that's beautiful, yeah. It's called... Uh, that's the one in the slipcase there. Yeah. The Oxford Companion to the Book. Uh, okay. Edited by a friend of mine, Michael Suarez. Oh, yes. He runs the Rare Book School. He, Michael runs the Rare Book School of Virginia. He's a Jesuit, although you wouldn't know... He puts S.J. after his name, but he doesn't wear the collar or anything. And he's he's smart as a whip. I've seen him present. He's yeah. very compelling. Yeah. Yeah. He's yeah. A, an evangelist for the book. He is. He is. Yeah. yeah. And he studied with an important figure in England, uh, D.F. Mackenzie, who was a bibliographer who taught at Oxford. One of the really interesting books that Mackenzie wrote, Mackenzie is on the level of Darnton and Eisenstein in terms of influence and scholarship. And his book is called uh, Bibliography and the Sociology of Texts. Fascinating book, published, I think, by Cambridge. And what does that deal with? It tries to bring into bibliography the description of books, the description of the social and cultural surround for a particular kind of book at a particular time. Huh. He does a lot with Elizabethan and Jacobean books and the point when the... In, the printed book was just getting started. Right. How it was read and yeah. who read it and who read it. how big the audience was. And Many of the classics that we think of as books started out as in manuscript and were circulated in manuscript in, during the Renaissance. So Mackenzie is another good one to start with. Okay. Yeah, but it really is quite a, a young field compared to others, I guess. Young in the sense of this interdisciplinary melding. But yeah. But there have been great bibliographers going way back. Yeah, yeah. Including the founder of the American Antiquarian Society, Isaiah Thomas. He wrote a book called The History of the Book in America, I think. That would have been way back in the, what, the early 1800s? The History of Printing in America. Okay. Because uh, yeah. he was a publisher, too, and a bookseller, he was right? A, he was a newspaper and a journal publisher in Boston, and he left Boston when the Brits came during mm -hmm. the Revolution. and. Moved out to Worcester. But he published books, didn't he? Published books, published newspapers, revolutionary yeah. tracts. And late in his life, I think he died in early 19th century, he did this history of printing in America and founded the American Antiquarian. So the basic collection that the American Antiquarian built on is his books, yeah. his personal collection. Is there a decent biography of him, I wonder? 
Hmm. If there isn't, there should be. Yeah. <laughs> there um, is. It's 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 called Isaiah Thomas, Printer and Patriot. But I can't remember the author's name. Okay. The phenomenon of self-publishing is something that uh, disturbs you. Yes. You call self-publishing a poor simulacrum of what I call the real book. Yeah. This was a paper I gave a few years ago at Sharp, and it was at the point of time when desktop publishing had just become feasible, thanks to Macintosh and Adobe and so on. And people were coming to me, uh, young scholars, coming to me with, uh, oh, I'll wait a minute. <laughs> A lot of traffic in Boston. It's the worst city in the world. My traf my cat cab rides. I've had two today. Bumper to bumper for like. If, if you were coming out of South Station, it's just. Yeah. <laughs> back to uh, yes. So. Uh, self publishing. Self publishing and and uh, young scholars were taking the dissertations, running them through the desktop publishing mill, and presenting me with what they thought was a finished product that they thought they could, that would ease my burden and that they could get a publication of the university press, which is one of the ways of getting tenure. But they were, they looked a little bit like a book. Yeah. They, they had type, they were justified, but they didn't have any of the, uh, what I would call value added that a publisher and an editor brings to it. So what's the key value added then? I think uh, a good reading pointing out er errors in fact, errors in grammar, many, many spelling errors, even despite spell check. <laughs> and then sometimes a lack of attention to audience. You write a dissertation for you know half a dozen people on your committee. Presumably, and it goes on the shelf, and that's it. They had no sense of uh, what a, a larger audience would be, how to make that all that incredible work they did on the dissertation available to people who didn't know or care about the specific narrow area, but they wanted to fit it into their cultural picture, a cultural uh, construct. So that that was my gripe. Was uh, formatting uh, issues were awful, and somehow people are afraid of blank pages and white space. Yeah. Well, you point to the fact that 90% of books that uh, are never published were, were suddenly appearing on the market. That's true. And uh, the audience, there's no winnowing down, and the audience was uh, overwhelmed and confused as a result, and you figure that devalues all print and throws into question the certification process that publication once offered. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. Really, right now, it's, you know, it's incredible the number of uh, self-published books that are going out. And, uh, you know, printers are doing well by it, but uh, I don't know about readers. You just yeah. have that many more books to choose from, I guess, but which are the good ones? You know? Part of editing and publishing used to be gatekeeping, which seemed somehow to limit or exclude, which, to be fair, did. I mean, how many, Yeah. you know, women, uh, women and uh, people of color didn't have access to print culture the way white males did. Yeah. But it also made the the world of possible reading 
incomprehensible. And it, and it, it said to the reader, especially if you saw the imprint of a publisher on the title page, that mm. someone had taken some care with it. Yeah. And that it had been reviewed and uh, I'd call it certified, uh, for lack of a better term. It had an imprimatur. <laughs> yeah. But so just winding down here, yeah, what sure. uh, is your favorite book history book? Which ones have you really loved reading? These are the ones that inspired me. Elizabeth Eisenstein, Bob Darnton, Don McKenzie. Yeah. Um, but what about the w one that you just love? Uh, you know, that, that, for example, sheds light on, a, on something that is... I'll tell you. Okay. There was an older book. It's called Parnassus Corner. Oh, yeah. By uh, Warren Tryon and uh, Bill Charvat. I'll follow that up with a little story about Charvat. But, but that's about the old corner bookstore. Tryon collected first editions at Tickner and Fields. He had hundreds of them. I don't know whatever happened to them. Right. But they were there in that in that building at the old corner for a while. And he and they just uh, did a very nice job of describing the life of uh, uh, James T. Fields, who was a farm boy from New Hampshire, not a university guy. And Tickner was a uh, general merchant. He didn't really care too much about books. But it was, as I argue and they argue, it's, uh, uh, publishing was a social mobility uh, avenue for people like Fields to get yeah. into the gentry, something that I <laughs> found sim I was sympathetic to. Okay. So that's one of my favorite books. Bill Charvat, who was a, another famous uh, and important uh, figure in the history of the book, wrote articles in the 50s on the book business of publishing for Longfellow, Melville, Hawthorne, how they made money, how the publishers dealt with them. He was, uh, and when I, the first paper I ever gave, I, I dedicated to the memory of Bill Charvat because he was so inspirational. Years later, I found out that his daughter is one of my best friends, and I didn't know that. Just simply because she had a different last yeah, name. Yeah, she had a different last name. Right. And I happened to mention her father. I happened to mention Bill Charvet to her, and she said, oh, that's my dad. He huh. was at Ohio State, fantastic pioneer in the history of book, history right. of the book. Yeah. And later became one of the editors of the Center for the Edition of American Authors, Hawthorne Edition. Yeah. What, uh, uh, as far as books you've read go, uh, have any of them motivated you to go out and collect any of these books that are mentioned? And if so, well, which? I, I told you earlier that I looked at a, tried to look at a, 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 a first edition of Leaves of Grass. Yeah. But I'm, I'm not a collector. No, okay. I buy books to use them. To read them and, and even make marks in them. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's a whole. You know that's the whole study itself of marking marginalia. And, yeah. Marginalia. But none of this reading has motivated you to go out and uh, I really want a copy of that for myself to see the original for my and have it. I'd like to see the originals. And I right. Can, uh, I'm, I mean, I've looked at originals of Moby Dick, for instance. Yeah. Both the English and American editions. For one thing, there's quite, there's quite a difference, isn't there? I think the first chapter is left off, or something like la that. The last chapter. Last chapter. Yeah. Okay. And the the English edition is a three decker, and the American edition is uh, 
single volume. Okay, yeah. Uh, you could, something about marketing books in Britain and, and America that they, yeah. so I've, I've always loved looking at the originals and looking at copies that the authors owned. Yes. Are very important to me. Yeah. But I, I, for one thing, they're very expensive. Yeah, that'll <laughs> deter. <laughs> I mean, if someone gave me a uh, first folio, I'd take it. <laughs> right. I guess you haven't taken, or no, it's not a question of taking step, it's falling off the ledge or something. I mean, me, for me, it's like if, you know, for example, I, would, I was reading, about, or actually I think it was a bookseller that told me about this great little series of books, Britain in Pictures. Mm. And uh, so I started reading up on it, and I... You know, they weren't expensive at all. They were 10 or 15 bucks a, a, a piece. Yeah. And I think I'm up to 110 of them out of 130. But it's, uh, I just love to have them. Yeah. There's yeah. an attraction to books and series. Mm-hmm. I published a book, Jay Satterfield's book on uh, the Modern Library. Oh, the the uh, the series. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that was Boney and Liverite to start. Started with, with Boney and Liverite, and then uh, uh, Surf, Surf there. Yeah. And uh, his partner bought the rights, and Random House was built on reprints of classics in the Modern Library. Right. So there are people who collect Modern Library books, which are, you know, they were a dollar a piece when they were first produced, in good condition. I don't know what the prices are now. A lot of it depends on who designed the jacket, too. Jacket designs. Rockwell Kent did some of them. Yeah. Uh, binding yeah. binding designs change over the years. Yeah. Leather. There was some... Started with little leather books, and yeah. now they're... Uh, then they had this green buckram for years and years and years. So that's another whole field of collecting. I, I've done some work on the Harvard Classics. Harvard the Lope? The Harvard Five-Foot Shelf of Books. The oh, yes, Okay. You can see them down there on the second shelf. The oh shelf. yes, yeah. What have you done on that? Well, I was uh, I had a fellowship at the uh, uh, Houghton Library. Okay. So I thought I would uh, do some research on the Harvard Classics, which were edited by President Eliot in 1910, right after he retired. Turned out that all of his papers were, and all I mean all of his papers, thousands of pieces were in the Pusey Library in the. Uh, Harvard Archives. So I had a Houghton Fellowship, but I spent all of my time down in the basement of Pusey <laughs> looking, going through uh, Elliot's papers. And just basically giving background on yeah. how he, what, edited and chose? And he was approached by Colliers, which is a famous magazine publisher, but also published uh, books, uh, collections of like great authors and, and sets for the general trade. Yeah. Mostly uh, marketed by traveling salesmen and by mail sales through coupons that you could cut out of Collier's Magazine. So they approached uh, Elliot and he said, oh yeah, I could do that. And he, he rounded up a, a professor of English at Harvard named uh, William Nielsen, who later became president of Smith. And they did this series and it turned out Elliot made millions of dollars from it in his estate. Because he uh, he got a piece of the action. He, he had a piece of the action. He had the name of Harvard on every book, which even then had cachet. Yes. And well, was, for the, obviously just for promoting the university. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. And the university wasn't happy about it, but somehow he talked the overseers into letting him use the Harvard name okay. and the Veritas symbol on the. Oh, yeah. right. It gives it credibility yeah. and helps the sales. Yeah. yeah. And and his own name was selling books because he was known as a educational reformer. So I did some work on that, and uh, I could I could start collecting those. Well, you get them for pretty near nothing, right? Yeah, but there are different states, there were different bindings. They okay. came in, in half leather, they came, the ones I have are a dollar, I think a dollar volume. That's how much they were initially sold for. Yeah. And they, you'd have a great library there too, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, it was, the state of the, thinking about the classics of world literature at the time, 1910, did he uh, add editorial commentary? It's very slim, very slight. All right. Little introductions. So not much work and a ton of uh, revenue for him. Post, at the end they did a series of uh, uh, guidebooks on how to use them. They were sort of assembled by whatever they could find and plates they could uh, rent and so on. But after the fact, they thought, this is probably an educational project that we could do. So they did a series of guidebooks on how to use them and, and how to use them in self-education. Self yeah. The, the theory was that for 10 minutes a, a day, you could become a, a literate, liberal, liberally uh, educated individual like a Harvard graduate. Oh, no. It's a whole marketing thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so your research... You you what you basically described how he went about this project yeah, yeah. and how successful the project was and the, the impact of it and all that. There's kind of lots thing. of correspondence with the publishers. There's lots of things that you don't usually find, like uh, uh, royalty statements, right. so you can f track the the income that he made from them. So you told you basically told the story of, of the five I, foot. I I have I give, gave two or three papers on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I never got it around to me, writing it up. <laughs> it's a book. Okay. Just finally, what are you working on now, and uh, why? Uh, right now, in book history, I'm yeah, in book on, history, yeah. I'm working on uh, the collected editions of Melville, uh, of the great American authors. His collected edition was the hardest one to get into print. It took a long time. Because of copyright, or...? No, no, because of, uh, well, two things. One, there was an English edition in the 1920s. You know, Melville was rediscovered in the 1920s. It was an English edition, which was called the Standard Edition. Beautiful letterpress edition that sort of co-opted the field for a long time. And then after World War II, there was another Melville revival. This was... Uh promulgated by interest from a famous scholar or well one of the mo more important books was called the American Renaissance by uh, F.O. Matheson at Harvard published yeah. in 1940 then the war came and a lot of these students who knew about Matheson and went off to war and then they came back and they went to graduate schools particularly at Harvard and also at Yale and started writing really good stuff on Melville so there was an there was a Melville Society formed, and there was an impetus to do a collected edition of Melville that would be more accurate and up to date than the English edition from the 1920s. And a publisher named Walter Hendricks somehow got in the field first and sort of co-opted the 
and scared off a lot of university presses who wanted to do this and, and uh, signed up a lot of the prospective editors. Then he ran out of money and he ran out of interest. And he founded Marlborough College in Vermont, which uh, is now about to go out of business. <laughs> when did he uh, do that? In the 50s? or uh, In the 50s, and uh, Marlborough's somewhere in the middle 50s, yeah. So this collected edition with some notable volumes, uh, very good volumes, sputtered along and never quite finished. In the meantime, the Center of Edition for American Authors was created in 1966 somewhere in the middle 60s, to promote proper editions of American classics. Uh, Hawthorne came out of that, uh, and uh, Thoreau. Who's, who's publishing that? Uh, the various presses around the country. I think uh, Thoreau is published by Princeton. Hawthorne, I think, is Ohio State. Huh. Are these with notes or no? Oh, yeah, they're... They're intended for scholars, there, yeah. and they deal with such uh, textual variants and, okay. and, and so on. Uh, stimulated by that, a, a group at uh, Northwestern University started the Melville edition, which was published and just recently completed by Northwestern University Press and the Newbury Library. Yeah, in Chicago, yeah. Yeah. But it took them all over almost 40 years to get it all done and that's what I was that's what I'm writing on now how difficult it was to get Melville into print into I mean he was in print in, in the sense that Moby Dick was available and yeah some, some of the the sea novels but the late poetry which is really good poetry hmm. not and you were wanting to figure out yeah how come yeah just to figure out how how it happened and who the figures were behind it and how it, how it finally all shook out. And can we look forward to a presentation uh, somewhere on, on that? I gave a paper on that at Sharp last summer. Oh, did you? Okay, yeah. so that was uh, that was the summer of 2019. Yeah. Okay. okay, but so what are you working on now? Are you, are you taking... I'm, I'm finishing that, trying to finish that up. I see. Okay. I have to get to Chicago to do... Uh, so that'll, cut, that'll be in print somewhere then? Let's hope. Okay. So we'll look forward to reading that yeah, yes. somewhere, somehow, hopefully. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for uh, talking to me about your experience uh, with UMass Press and, and the whole field of uh, book history, which owes a lot to you, I think. Well, I certainly, it, books, I owe a lot to books, and I love to talk books, book talk. So thank you for coming. This is my pleasure. I've been talking with uh, Paul Wright, who uh, was the editor of uh, UMass Press from 1988 to 2006 and is now a publishing and print culture historian. Thanks again. Thank you.